And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Today, we're talking with a missionary who serves on a remote island in Southeast Asia. And he's in such a high security area that I'm not even going to share his name. Instead, he's going to go by Alan for this episode. Alan is originally from the Pacific Northwest. He did his education in California, and he served with the IMB for 25 years in Southeast Asia. During those 25 years, he has served among a majority Muslim population where Christian religious workers are not allowed. And for that reason, and to safeguard his work, some of the details discussed in this episode will be a little bit more vague and general. In addition to that, in the show notes, we will include uh, his official giving link if anyone feels led to donate to this work after listening to this episode. With that, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. And it's a pleasure to be with you today. Why don't we just begin with kind of uh, an overview of of where you are, where you serve. Give us an overview of your context, the the people, the environment. Tell us about that. Well, as you noted, we're in in Southeast Asia. It's a little mix of subsistence farming and subsistence fishing. There are service industries available. They have what they would call cities, although we still have goats running around the road. and we're in the not in the middle of nowhere, but on the on the way to it. Okay, that's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about the the, the culture, what the people are like, those kinds of things? Well, they're very friendly and open. Uh, in some respects, are like Americans in that they, they they will tell you what they think. There are other cultures who are more are more polite and you know won't really tell you, but they'll tell you right here. So you always know where you stand, which is helpful for me. I like the food. I, like I said, the people are very friendly. And you noted the major religion, but, and they're quite strong in that, although animism is very high in the daily life. Okay. Okay. So you would kind of maybe categorize the area as being kind of a, maybe a folk Islam kind of area where they mix some of the animistic practices with some of the Islamic practices. Yeah. But the mixing is underneath. They're not going to really admit it. Okay. But it's pretty strong. It's where they live. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Are there are there any interesting facts about your your context, your your region of the world that people may not know about? Well, where I'm at, um, you had asked for about some things that might surprise people. One is about the educational level. Currently, there is about one third of the population in elementary school, and there is about one third of the population that has finished elementary school. Wow! And the remaining third has never set foot in elementary school. <laughs> So if you think about literacy and speaking to people outside of the local languages, that can be challenging. So at the time when we did the New Testament translation, we focused on orality, assuming that someone would be reading the scripture to someone because not everyone would be able to do that. Mm. Wow. That's fascinating. I noted in your 
introduction that you originally are from the Pacific Northwest here in North America, but now you're in Southeast Asia. So how did someone from the Pacific Northwest get all the way around the world to Southeast Asia? Can you tell us that story? Well, I would say clearly it's the the call of the Lord on my life. I was saved when I was about nine. I felt even as a small child uh, that I should be going overseas. And it's just a matter of how that's arranged. I did undergraduate and I got a Bachelor of Science. I didn't get a religion degree. And then I went to our facility in California to do my MDiv. And then in those days, before you could sign up with International Mission Board, you would need to have a certain number of years in the pastorate. So I did did that for about 12 years and then headed overseas here. Wow. So you've been there over 25 years now. Correct. I would love I would love for you to share, you know, what is it about this place, this location that makes it so special to you? The first of course is the uh, the call of the Lord and I don't know how trendy that is nowadays, but really it's foundational when life is slamming you down, why do you stay? Why do you keep going? It's because the Lord has called me here. Mm-hmm. And it's quite apparent to me, my friends, anybody else, that this is actually where I should be and plant my life to be here. Now, I know that you're engaging in a challenging work there, but can you describe what some of the challenges are that you face in your ministry? And the challenges are probably surprising because we haven't talked before. <laughs> As you noted, this area is high majority of, of not our religion, but of a, we call it the cousin religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael, you know, were half-brothers, and then we who follow on each side are like cousins looking at each other. I came here a long time ago, and there were maybe a handful of believers. It was very difficult to share the gospel in a way that people would understand, and we would tell you that we were spinning our wheels for seven years, not getting anywhere. One of the reasons was I learned that the typical one-on-one EV that you know we would do in the Pacific Northwest or where you are in the U.S. is actually counterproductive here. Because you would find someone who would say yes to Jesus, that would mean he would be kicked out of his home, his, he'd get fired from his job, and anybody who else would be suspicious, even though they were confessed believers and they would not want to get together. So we made a big change in our uh, evangelism strategy. Instead of fishing with hooks, we started fishing with nets. And mm-hmm. so sharing the gospel in the context of family and groups of friends, and that way we would start with a group. And when people got saved and then uh, baptized, and we would have a group already. So Mm -hmm. from that, we have reached over 2% of the population, which is a rare thing in the world to happen within 25 years. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about some of the cost for some of these new believers and their decision to choose to follow after Jesus? We have a specific persecution strategy, and part of it is engaging and part of it is an avoidance. As you look at the life of Paul, he did some of both, depending on what was happening. Mm-hmm. So part of our our engaging is that, well, part of our avoidance is that we never talk about their profit or their book. It is off subject that will get you beaten in place and then arrested. So we don't even talk about that. We just talk about Jesus. So, that's, so the engaging part is talking about Jesus. The avoidance part is avoiding the religious flashpoints that would occur. The other engaging and avoiding thing is that I mentioned we share the gospel in the context of family so that everybody hears the gospel together. Before it was just 
strange thing that one person did. But now, even though all the family doesn't say yes at the same time, they don't have an allergy attack when someone of their family does. Mm. And so in that way, uh, you have a solid unit together mm. and that avoids a lot of the sources of, of persecution. There are two traditional sources. One's a family, the other is religious leaders. Mm. And so those are people that that are engaged and not avoided when we talk about sharing the gospel. In fact, we just had this past weekend, two religious leaders and their wives dunked in the ocean here. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I want to, I want to hear some more uh, of that um, in terms of what, what the Lord is doing in, in a moment. Can you talk at all about how the geography, the, the island context, is, is that a challenge in any way to your work? And what does that look like? Well, the things have changed, of course, in 25 years. When I first arrived, it was five days by ship from uh, mm. a national harbor to get here. Wow. Yeah. So that was, and I mean, there was, no, I mean, there was, the bridges were like coconut trees put over, you know, the river or whatever, <laughs> so you can get the, the car across. And, you know, of course, no internet or mostly electricity, but not always. Things have improved. We have better internet now than you do there in the U.S. Mm. So things have changed, but it still takes me like if I, from here to the U.S., it's two to three days by air. So there is a remoteness to that. When we had the lockdowns in the world during the pandemic, the only thing we needed was fuel because everything else we have here. So it was quite different than urban areas, which are dependent on the things you need in life from the outside. So we're, it's a contained heartland. Mm. Yes. Uh, mm. And so because of that, I've, for the most time in the 25 years I've been here, I've been the only white guy in nine hours in any direction. Wow. And so part of that is there's a, it's a solid homeland. And then there's some isolation built in that too. This is helpful because, you know, I'm not a gatekeeper, but there's nobody else who wants to come here. So we don't have to deal with some of the religious contamination. You know, not everything that calls itself Christian is a good deal. And right. so we don't have to deal with that because nobody comes here. <laughs> so. Wow. Wow. Alan, so the fact that you just what you just kind of mentioned there is interesting to me that you know you're you're kind of the only person who kind of maybe looks like you in in a, a wide correct uh, dire- direction yeah. on both sides. So yeah, it, does that? I mean, I know you've been there for so many years now, but does that arouse any suspicion by people in the community? Are you looked at with any kind of concern, or have you been able to just kind of establish the rapport and the relationships where people kind of see you as, in a sense? one of them, even though maybe you look a little bit different. Uh, yes, now I'm one of them. So okay. if we have a random backpacker coming through, they want a picture with them and they hand the camera to me. They don't want a picture <laughs> with me because I'm local. <laughs> so in the, yeah, in the, in the initial, they thought it was, you know, am I CIA? And it's like, I'm sorry, no, the CIA is not interested in this little out of the way place in the world. There's nothing happening here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Reaching a specific people group with the gospel demands specialized training and a global vision. Southern Seminary supports these ministry goals through theological education that is trusted for truth. A degree in missiology from Southern Seminary provides students with the biblical foundation and theological training necessary to take the gospel into all the world. The program prepares graduates to serve as missionaries, church planters, and ministry leaders anywhere in the world. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs, or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. 
There you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. The web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. Can you describe a little bit of what life looks like for you? Just, you know, maybe not on a daily basis, but yeah, on a kind of a weekly, monthly kind of basis. Yeah. What are some of the activities, things that you're involved in? Sure. Well, to live in a place like this, it would not be permitted for me to be a religious worker. So I have a job and it's so different from other jobs that I I won't be able to mention it for a podcast. Sure. But it is oftentimes the best way to hide is in plain sight. So I'm very high profile. Tomorrow morning, I, I will be with one of the highest officials in the country, and everybody knows me. And because I work for a job, I really work. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like you pretend to work, but I really do work at this job. So in contributing to the community in a sustainable way, mm-hmm. and so that's part of the things that I do. Then, you know, I have other important things to do with my life, and like when the house church leaders come by that would be like in the evenings because of course they work also and Hmm. we work around the schedules when the gospel tells us to be ready in season and out that's really focus of what i do here is because i always have to be ready for whenever somebody says this is what we're doing now and i says okay that's what we're doing You, you alluded to some of this earlier when you talked about some of the translation work which is an encouraging thing that's going on you also talked about some local former religious leaders who have recently dunked. But can you tell us some more about, about what the Lord is doing, how he is at work? Sure. As I mentioned briefly, we're over 2% of the population as dunk believers. That's baptized Christians in groups, and I know where the villages are. So it's mm-hmm. not, uh, we don't count anything that's any that's vague. And you can imagine that there would be, I mean, we had like over 5,000 baptisms last year that they reported in. So that's a lot of people to keep track of. Wow. And the main Concern, of course, is for leadership training. You know, you do this in your job, too, and it's important for Mm -hmm. people, especially without Christian background, to understand what the gospel is and how to live as someone who is following Christ and not the the culture that that raised them. And so doing national leadership training is a real crucial part of preserving and analyzing what the DNA is of all the leaders that we need. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about orality strategy. As more of that, you know, you mentioned a third of the population going to elementary, another third finishing it. Is seemingly more of the population is getting a little bit of schooling. Is the is the literacy rate increasing? And kind of what what do you envision that meaning for the work, say, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? Um, I think it's declining. And I think it's also true in the West because everybody's on their phone. And how Mm. many letters do you need to send a message to your friend? Do you need verbs? Right. Do you need all the particles to send a message? You don't. And so the transition now, I mean, we, we already finished basically the initial print of the gospel. It's already all out. And I asked the networks, I said, so do you want a new print, new printing of the book? And they says, no, we want it on our phones. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the new world is that everybody wants it on their phone. And so in that way, it also keeps it oral. And it also is oh, in some sense a little more secure for them because you don't have a book lying around. Although uh, sure. people here are absolutely not uh, shamed or silent about their faith. They'll leave their Bible on the, the table. We had a family last month who was kicked out of the family home because they wouldn't keep their Bible off the guest table in the main room. Mm. Wow. So is it fairly common? You talk about their phones. Is it fairly common for people to to listen to portions Correct. of Scripture? Is that kind of the kind of, kind of the norm? Correct. Yep. Okay. That's great. 
All right. I, I want to shift to some lightning round questions. You know, you've been serving in this context now for 25 years. You have a lot of wisdom and experience. What do you think it takes to be a faithful worker in an extreme context like you're in? That one's easy because every time you get slapped down, you have to get back up. And mm. that is every time. And it will happen a lot and it will be hard. And that's where it goes back to calling. Do you give up and quit and go back? Or do you just get up and try it again? Mm. So that is the most important confidence in your call and then the willingness to get up and start again. Okay. So you, you I've had a conversation with several other people who are veteran workers as well. And they they also told me they thought resilience Correct. Was, was kind of the key ingredient for somebody to be a faithful and effective worker for, for many decades. So it sounds like you would agree with that assessment. I would. And resilient is one of the English words I have forgotten. Um, I speak English about one to five hours a month. Yep. So I forget some of the words. Oh, there you go. You you just described resilience. So it was encouraging to hear you describe that. What is maybe one thing you wish that you knew before you arrived? Hmm. I haven't thought about that one. What I wish I would have known. Well, what I'm glad I didn't know, I'll do it a different way, is um, how hard it would be. You know, you know that it's going to be difficult and whatever, but yeah, it's when the Lord only gives you the light, you know, for the steps in front is for a reason. Because if you saw the whole mountain, you'd say, there's no way I'm doing this. <laughs> okay, that's good. Is there a, a resource that you would encourage, you know, some of the listeners to to go find if they were wanting to know more about your context, more about the religious environment, if they were just wanting to learn more about you and your work or anything connected to that, any kind of book or video or movie or website or something that you might point them to? Yes. And I can't think of the name. One would be Honor and Shame. It's a very small book. Okay. Uh, yep. You could just, maybe even know the book, but societies function very differently. And so here's, of course, an Honor and Shame Society, and you really have to pay attention or you'll get yourself in trouble. And you're not even talking about the same things and you're making mistakes that you wouldn't if you realize that it's an honor shame issue for them. It's not a right or wrong, as mm. we think of in the West. There is also a good book, One God. You have to have to put it on, on Amazon. It's from one of our workers in Africa and it explains to someone who is a Muslim what the gospel is okay. using the way that they think. So I recommend that to people in the States, particularly if they have people in university or friends or whatever who've moved from other countries That's to explain great. what the gospel is. Okay. One God, one message is what it is. Okay. Yep. And the author of the Honor and Shame is Roland Roland Mueller, I believe. Correct. Yep. And so, yeah, that's like Bransom, maybe. Brand is the one of the One God, One Message. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's helpful. Hopefully, our listeners will will enjoy those. One other question I have before I ask you your last question. This one wasn't on the list that I sent you, but just in light of your context. So you mentioned that you're in kind of a cousin environment where where people probably have some sort of framework for Jesus and some of those kinds of things, but obviously from a very different perspective. Have there been times where you've engaged on an island or in a remote location where you have encountered people who genuinely have no concept of, of Jesus? Well, their concept is very vague. They will mostly know that he's one of the 20-something prophets uh, that they have in their list, and that's about it. They're not very literate in their own school, I guess. They're not very schooled in their own religion. And we're here not, of course, to make them more educated in their own religion. Right. So 
We just talk about Jesus. And actually, one of the most effective ways we have of winning people is New Testament study. Mm. Uh, in various ways, uh, local believers just sitting down every evening with another couple and just starting in Matthew and keep going. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's great. I love that. All right, Alan, last question. How would you encourage people who are working in difficult environments? What would you say to them? The important thing is to uh, focus on the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And so that what you're doing is not for you. It's not even for IMB. It's for the kingdom. And we know that, that the kingdom is like a seed that is and will grow into something that is wonderful, uh, far beyond our expectation. Mm -hmm. Alan, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. Thanks for inviting me, Dr. Aiken. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.